Thomas Pichon was not the only influential Acadian figure present at Fort Beausjour for the siege. Also, there was a man who was practically the polar opposite of the opportunistic spy. The Abbé Jean-Louis Leloutre was the preeminent religious authority for the Catholic Church in Acadia. Thomas Pichon sarcastically called him Moses, and a few people had more influence over the people of Acadia. Welcome to the second episode of Chronicles of a Spy in Acadia, the podcast where we examine the history of Acadia through the eyes of a treacherous 18th century spy. I'm Yannick. And I'm Michaela. In this episode, we'll be exploring the stories of the people of Acadia, both the settler and indigenous Mi'kmaq populations, and how the people in power, like Le Loutre, were able to influence them. So, some background before we get underway. As we discussed briefly in the first episode, the First Nation's presence in Acadia was the Mi'kmaq. Like so many stories of colonization, they got along fairly well at first with the European settlers, but by 1755 were increasingly being pushed to the sidelines metaphorically by the collision of empires, as well as literally being pushed into inhospitable edges of their former territory. That's not to say they did nothing to oppose the practice, though. Most of the European settlers, meanwhile, in Nova Scotia at this time were French Catholics, who lived in communities often dating back over a hundred years. These were the Acadians, and they developed a culture and community unique to them and their homeland. Until the Great Deportation, or Grand Derangement, that will happen later in 1755, when the British expelled over 7,000 of them, kicking them out to distant parts of the empire. In the region we're focusing on, many Acadians are homeless, left as refugees after the burning of Beaubassin in 1750. Joining us again to lend some first-hand insight and personal observations on the people in and around Beaubassin is our titular spy. Welcome back, Monsieur Pichon. Sir, very dear friend, it's wonderful to be back. I know things got a bit confrontational last time, but we'll try to keep things more civil today. So, let's start off with the subject we know you're passionate about, the Abbé Le Loutre. What can you tell us about him and his role in Acadia? And since I have a feeling you'll tell us anyway, what were your personal opinions on the man? Ah, Moses. The man who will lead his people to their exodus. That influential preacher who liked to play the role of Aaron, of the high priest. His passion, or should I say petulance, was something to behold. He would exhaust himself with his own preaching. <laughs> he was dangerous, though. He was cunning. He was jealous, and he was always watchful. And he was constantly agitating the Indians, to the point where I saw them as his Indians. He desired to get them into action. We were feared that he would end by inciting these savages, over whom he had great influence, to the point of warpath. Now, are you sure you're being quite fair here? Yes, Lelutra did have the money and influence to encourage the Acadians and Mi'kmaq to help fight against the British, and we know he even paid the Mi'kmaq some generous bounties on British scalps in 1753. But everything suggests he was a much more complicated man than what we just heard. No one is questioning that he was an extremely devout Catholic, and he was just as devoted to France, but... Mais oui! He certainly was that. Moses was on a mission that I suppose he would say came from God. He was determined to protect his interests of France and the Catholics in Acadia. That was his crusade. But perspectives on the Lutra himself seem to change a lot depending on the beliefs of the person doing the writing. 
Even today, historians have a hard time deciding if he was a dedicated civil servant or a French agent actively perpetuating violence. This is especially true in his role in the burning of the village of Beaubasson, which we will get to later. We can certainly see where our guest stands on the matter. And I stand by it. The man was an enemy of everything I believed in. Right, of course. We're not questioning the strength of your convictions, Monsieur Pichon, however recently adopted they are. Now, though, I'd like to discuss the indigenous people of Acadia, the, the Mi'kmaq. You talk a lot about Le Doutre's influence on the indigenous people. You call them, and I'm quoting directly from your November 18, 1754 letter, his Indians. Le Doutre himself expressed a similar sentiment in his own writings. Of course, we don't know what the Mi'kmaq themselves thought about being described as such. Can you tell us a little about that relationship between the Europeans and the Mi'kmaq? Moses had several parishes set up in their villages. Many of them had long been converted to Catholicism, and they held a close relationship with Moses. I remember a conference he had with several of the chiefs, where they exchanged gifts and were most friendly as plotting against us. Besides his influence, though, I knew a few individuals among them. On a trip to Gasparu in January 1755, I met a Mi'kmaq fellow from Cape Sabo named Jean-Baptiste Philippe de Comac and his wife, Madeleine Le Songa. She spoke French very well, and we discussed the ongoings in Mi'kmaq population and numbers of warriors in the region for purely legitimate reasons, I assure you. So, this is interesting. You talk a lot about Lelutra's influence over the indigenous people and how they were, in quotes, savages out to get you and the English. And yet, you got to know some of them on a personal level. Do you not see the contradiction here? I admit I regret my uncharitable expressions from earlier. I bore the Mi'kmaq no ill will personally, but you understand they were fighting a war against us. The fear they instilled in us was quite genuine. I see. What about the Acadians? What can you tell us about them, just as people? Well, even though in 1713 we... And by we, you mean the English, right? Tabor wet beyond ce jeu. Yes, I do mean the English. All right, all right. Keep going, then. In 1713, the English took control of Acadie through the Treaty of Utrecht. You would never know to speak to the people there. By the time I got there, nearly all the British were settlers in Halifax or soldiers in Fort Lawrence. Chignecto, where I was, retained its Acadian culture. They farmed using a clever system of dikes, but kept to themselves mostly. Though, I understand they usually got along well with the local Mi'kmaq. I did not have too much interaction with them, to be honest but I hear their culture was quite powerful. I've heard stories that even British soldiers in their forts near their settlement would adopt their customs. God knows why. An important part of the Acadian culture was their Catholic religion. How did you see them interact with Le Loutre and the other clergy? What kind of a role would faith have played for them in these turbulent times? <laughs> they have been so thoroughly conditioned to follow the Catholic clergy and to fear the English yoke. They fail to see that they are already under the thumb of a much worse power. So, according to you, the priests had such a stranglehold on the Acadian psyche that the settlers were pretty well brainwashed into believing the English were evil and godless, and they would destroy 
any of the Akkadians that they found? Say something? I heard Moses himself prophesize to the Akkadians, telling them that if they went to the English, they would have no priests or sacraments and would die as outcasts from their people. That sounds like a lot, but I suppose it does tell us how important religion was in shaping the worldview of the Akkadians, and it does fit what we know about the Lutre. After all, these people are mostly farmers and there's a war going on. It would make sense why they were so scared they generally didn't want to fight a losing battle alongside the French at Beausajour or join with the English. Religion espoused by men like Le Loutre was a constant for them during these turbulent times, even if it was also a source of fear. And now, let's get into what made these times so turbulent. Obviously, there is a war going on, and the British have taken Fort Beausajour at this time. Even before that, though, in 1750, the village of Beaubasson was burned to the ground, making its entire population, as Mr. Pichon often described them, into refugees. What can you tell us about that? Well, it was before I arrived. But I heard the stories. From what I heard, when the British army approached Chignecto in 1750, Moses and his Frenchmen cruelly ordered the town to be burned to the ground, to deny it to the enemy. You see... He and the French cared so little about their own people that they would destroy the homes and livelihoods of thousands of people just to slow down the British a little bit. And it did not even work. The British built Fort Lawrence on the spot anyway. We're not going to argue with you on the ethics of the burning, though you are right, it displaced almost 3,000 Acadians and ultimately did not stop the British from taking over. That said, you still seem pretty hung up on Lelutra's role as an instigator of the destruction. Historians are fairly divided on the Abbey's role in it, but how about the people? How did they seem to be doing when you got there? In 1754, I saw many of the refugees packing up to leave for Quebec. I can't say I blamed them, though it cannot have been as easy for them to leave their homes as it was for me. Moses, of course, tried to scare them into staying, but personally I stepped in to comfort them and provide them with advice on how to present themselves in Quebec. How terribly selfless of you. Have you ever been to Quebec, Monsieur Pichon? I have not, but I fail to see how that's important. These poor folks who stayed there were barred from communication with the British bank of the river. It seems a most miserable and unfortunate life. Robbed of one's home, then ordered to and fro by Moses and the army officers. It does indeed. These, after all, are the ordinary people who were caught in the middle of the conflicts of men of authority. Generals, priests, spies. Like the Mi'kmaq, there was little they could do as the British and French fought over who would be able to control their land. As for Le Loutre, he was taken prisoner by the British in 1755 after fleeing Fort Beausjour in disguise when the ship he was on to flee Acadia was captured by the English. The coward. He was held in a British prison for eight years and was released to France in 1763. He spent the last of his life working to help Acadian families deported to France. He died on September 30th, 1772. Well, say what you will about Moses, but he was certainly strong in his convictions. Remind you of anyone, hmm? You take that back. All right, all right. Unfortunately for the Acadians, who couldn't flee the way the Abbe had tried to, the burning of Beaubassin was far from the last hardship they would endure. The Grand Derangement is coming soon for them. 
Thanks again to our guest, Monsieur Thomas Pichon, for his trenchant first-hand insights into life in Acadia. Sir, madam, it has always been my ardent desire to please and to be of service. I appreciate the opportunity to share my stories. Join us in the next episode for the conclusion of the Chronicles of a Spy in Acadia, where we will explore the result of the Clash of Empires, the attempt to eliminate the Acadian culture entirely, and of course, where Mr. Pichon's life of spying got him in the end. This podcast has been brought to you by the fourth year history students of Brock University's Humanities Program. For more information, please visit the class website of Brock History 4P11, which was taught by Daniel Sampson and titled State and Society in Colonial Canada. Obisong, on the edge of empires, by clicking the link in our description. Chronicles of a Spy in Acadia is hosted by Michaela Vanderbilt and Yana Grignon. The voice of Thomas Bichon is done by Dexter Bolin, with opening narration done by Aaron Hall. This episode was written by Yana Grignon, with additional research being completed by Connor Brown and Michael D'Angelo. The music in this episode is remixed by Michaela Vanderbilt from Looperman.com.